everybody. This is You Are Good. I am one of your co-hosts, Alex Steed. I'll be joined by my wonderful co-host, Sarah Marshall. Momentarily, we are talking about the movie Set It Off. We're talking about it with Akila Green. You Are Good, of course, is a feelings podcast about movies. More about all that momentarily. First, I just want to let you know that You Are Good is made possible with your support. Thank you so much to everyone who supports us on Patreon at patreon.com slash good. We appreciate you. It makes the whole thing possible. And you get bonus episodes. We had an episode recently about grief. Our upcoming episode, should be out in the next couple of weeks, will be about who framed Roger Rabbit. We initially made an episode about multiverse movies, and then um, there was a recording issue, so that doesn't exist. (laughs) But somewhere in the multiverse, you uh, could be listening to that episode. Anyway, next bonus episode will be about who framed Roger Rabbit. Look for that soon. Uh, You Are Good is also made possible with support by Knack Factory. Thanks so much, Knack Factory. K-N-A-C-K Factory. It's a commercial and creative video content production company with offices in Portland, Maine, though they do work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. We make playlists that accompany each of these episodes. You can find that playlist linked in the show notes. Please uh, check that out. I think you'll like it. People like our playlists we hear. So we're talking about Set It Off. We're talking about Set It Off with Akila Green. We're so happy to talk about this movie, which has been requested many times. We're so happy to talk with Akila, who was just fabulous. Set It Off is a 1996 American crime action heist film directed by F. Gary Gray and written by Kate Lanier and Takashi Buford. The film stars Jada Pinkett, Queen Latifah, Vivica A. Fox, and Kimberly Elise, and it follows four close friends in Los Angeles who plan to execute a bank robbery, each doing so for different reasons to achieve better for themselves and their families. This was a lovely chat, and I'm so happy to be sharing it with you here. So without further ado, as some folks say, uh, let's talk about Set It Off with Akila Green. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. <laughs> what was, what'd you text me? It was so good. It's my favorite quote from this whole movie. I have to read it word for word. Oh, oh I got exactly. it. I found your text to me. Okay. And now the police are all over the suspect's tail. <laughs> that famous line from Set It Off. <laughs> yeah. Remember the merch of that saying oh in the my 90s? God, I can't. I'm so, Sarah, I'm so happy we're talking about Set It Off. It's probably it's one of the most requested movies we get Mm -hmm. this is a movie that people love and who sarah will we be talking about this movie with we're talking about it with akila green hello hi how are you i'm wonderful thank you guys for having me it's so great akila tell us a couple of things about yourself Oh, I am from Houston, Texas, which is where I am right now. I'm a former lawyer, current TV writer, living in Los Angeles most of the time. Mm, Fantastic. And why? We'll dive in, obviously, later, but like, why set it off? Well, you know, so I'm a fan of your podcast. Uh, Ashley Nicole Black put me on to You Are Good and You're Wrong About. And so I've been listening for a long time. And the movies that you guys talk about, they're like formative movies for a lot of us. I think we're kind of generally in the same age range and grew up Mm. on these movies. And so I was thinking about like, what are the movies that really shaped who I am? You know, a lot of us think we came out of the gate with our political and social ideologies fully formed. But one of the reasons I wanted to be a TV writer is because I was aware of how TV and film kind of opened my mind to things that were outside of my southern suburban sheltered christian living room and set it off was one of those movies for me and i won't say how old i was when it came out but i was young and i just remember my best friend and i saw this movie like nine times in the theater we were just like enamored with these women we saw ourselves in these women the same way that people look at sex in the city like i'm a samantha or whatever we just loved this movie and because i had such compassion for these women And not that I was, like my parents are progressive liberal Democrats. I was always on my way to that. But this is the movie where I was like, oh, people are really products of their circumstances and their environments. And I feel like at a young age, this movie really drove that home for me, where I was like, these women who I have so much compassion for have 
really shitty options to choose from. And mm. it just stuck with me for a very long time and probably shaped a lot of my ideology. Yeah, for sure. So that's why I love it. And it's also just an amazing heist movie. And I watched it a few years ago and it still holds up. It's so good. It's so good. It's so good. Okay. That's a fantastic setup. Sarah. Yes. What is set it up? What happens in set it up? So let me give you, first of all, my most condensed possible summary. <laughs> set it off is a black lady heist movie. It is about four women, Stoney, Tishan, Cleo, and Frankie. It's nine in the morning over here. Okay. I did pretty good. And <laughs> Sure. Anytime we do a niner, I'm so happy that you're just like up and ready to recount details of a movie. <laughs> so it's about these four women deciding for various reasons to start robbing banks, which they're quite good at, and being hunted down like Jean Valjean by Dr. Cox. <laughs> the end. So Dr. Cox, you talked about his LAPD run. Yeah. Prior to this, he was the same character in Point Break. Is that right? Probably. But I was thinking of him being the SWAT guy in Seven. Oh, yeah. And it's so funny how like in the 90s, we were like kind of trying to figure out we were like, like what flavor of asshole is John C. McGinley? And for a while, he was cop flavor asshole. But then he really found obviously his moment as doctor flavored asshole on scrubs right <laughs> and then he had a little foray into corporate management asshole in office space yes that was a good one too like redundancy elimination i think that what we realize is that we like watching him be an asshole when he's not murdering people which makes sense that's true right <laughs> <laughs> is that the description we go in from there? I guess to speak to like the different women. So Stoney is played by Jada Pinkett at the time, um, who is now the most controversial woman in America. So good for her. <laughs> and this movie also reveals how she got that haircut. So <laughs> <laughs> this is the origin story of Jada's aesthetic. Yeah. Can I just say at that time, though, as a black woman, her wearing her hair that short was like a game changer. Her and Tony Braxton, uh, they right really did it and made it hot. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely. mean, it obviously looks amazing on her. I feel like that can't be controversial. And so our four characters, basically, we have Frankie played by Vivica A. Fox at the start getting fired because she didn't follow protocol when the bank she works at was getting robbed violently yeah there's a gun to her head like she didn't respond appropriately to like a very violent situation mm -hmm. and so this is how we meet dr cox that's all i'm gonna call him and then we meet stoney played by jada pinkett who is trying to put her brother through college and he ends up being murdered by dr cox because the guy who committed the robbery shaved the initials he had in his hair into Sony's brother's hair, which is very clever. And the opening is watching each of these women kind of be herded toward the inevitability of robbing a bank. And then we have Cleo, played by Queen Latifah, who is like our Sundance kid lesbian who works for a janitorial company and just like, is she given like a big, horrible thing? I don't think she needed one. I think that right. her character was just like, there's nothing to lose and nothing to hope for. Let's go for it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And then we have Tishan, whose son is taken away because she has to take him to work. And then he gets into some cleaning fluid and, you know, is poisoned by that and is seized by the authorities at the hospital. So each of them has a very compelling reason to need some money that they have no other way to get. And Dr. Cox is just shooting everybody all over the place. And that's, yeah, that's the setup. It's <laughs> fantastic. So Akila, take us to when you initially saw this movie and you, you spoke to the things that it spoke to in you and you felt like were formative, but like what was the before and after of seeing this movie and what about it stuck out to you? Well, one, I think, you know, Queen Latifah, Jada Pinkett, we had already known, the, Vivica A. Fox, we had already known those names. We're fans, we're excited. There were a limited number of black actresses on TV and film at the time. And so, of course, we're showing up to see this movie. Like it's a heist movie with real stakes. And, you know, I think, think to that point, we thought we saw Italian mobsters and like slick white guys and you know, it's fun and who cares? Like if they win or lose or die or whatever. And this one, like, oh, these are real people with real stakes and there's a real theme here. And so I think that's kind of what drew me to it. 
And then I also think as a teenage girl, Blair Underwood was a huge draw. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of us were like, we're going to grow up and marry that guy. And we didn't. (laughs) But that was also really cool. (laughs) I feel like this is like the fantasy that as a tween I had of adult life where like, you just never know where you're going to meet this amazing, gorgeous guy. Like you could be going to the bank. Calling the plumber, (laughs) going to the aquarium store. It's like a porno (laughs) premise, but for romantic comedy, just he could be around any corner. Well, also, I mean, Jada was also like no makeup, baggy clothes, picking up this hot banker at the bank, which was also inspirational. (laughs) Especially coming from Houston, where we, you know, we like big hair and makeup. (laughs) We dress up to go to football games. And so that was also inspiring. Yeah, she's like, this is just my scoping out a bank outfit. So. Yes. I'm sorry I keep bringing this up, but I could be wrong about Dr. Cox being in Point Break, but I bring it up because like of the time. So this came out in 1995, right? 96, I think. 96. Yeah. O to 96. Yeah. And Point Break comes out in 91, but it's like the most recent before this like pop culture heist movie I can think about that's not Heat. Huh. And speaking of the motivations, like again, like this movie sets up stakes. It kind of lays out the systemic rationale for each individual feeling like this is their only option. And Point Break is about white guys who need to pull off bank robberies so they can surf more. Like, <laughs> <Yes>. so, <laughs> so, so just like as contrast goes. Totally. It's a phenomenal standalone movie, but it's phenomenal for doing what it does because I think also like it loves these characters in a yes. way that I think like a lot of movies, a lot of movies, even when they say they love the characters, like treat them disposably right. in some way. And I can't even explain how that plays out. But like, this is a movie where I feel like the movie itself loves the people who are involved and like truly understands the situations. They're not like cheap setups. They're like, these are mm-hmm. actual situations that people are in that would put them in this circumstance. And the characters love each other. Like there's a real sisterhood, mm. which is also fun. Like the ragtag crew of misfits that gets together to do the job. Like these girls have grown up together since elementary school, it sounds like like first grade, I think. And so you love these women and they love each other. And when they have strife within their group, you're like, no, (laughs) you know, I was on board fully. Yeah. It's also really funny. Yeah. Somehow in the midst of all this darkness, it's really funny. There's a lot of great one-liners and McGinley, he's got several of them. What are some that stand out to you? Yeah. Oh, we we used to repeat so many of them, but um, (laughs) asshole, perhaps when he was trying to guess what the AP stands for, which is like... I'm not saying it's hard comedy, <laughs> but, but I loved it. And then no one receives it. And he's like, get the fuck out of here. Yes, <laughs> yes. And then I just, I'm not going to say this is the first time somebody, you know, but you know, the cheesy heist one-liners, like there's always the captain who's like, I want you to stop following this case, you know? And then he says, what part don't you understand? The N or the O, which, you know, <laughs> we've heard many, many times before, but we repeated that so many times. <laughs> It's funny to me because literally yesterday we recorded an episode on Ocean's Eleven, which is truly the exact opposite yes. of this movie on the high spectrum, right. which is like a bunch of white guys, no stakes, except maybe I'll win my wife back. Yes. And also like, we'll either get like an unbelievable amount of money or things will be fine. So mm. <laughs> or things will be just fine. Yeah. yeah. Also a fantastic heist movie, though. Yeah. And also like deeply quotable. And there's just, I mean, I just feel like a, like the stakes in this movie felt more intense to me than any Marvel movie I can think of, because like, I cannot conceptualize the world blowing up, but I can conceptualize the consequences that are on the table here. There's a scene in Set It Off where Stoney has sex with an older man who owns a car dealership so that she can pay for her little brother's tuition money for college because both of her parents died in a car accident. And, you know, as a teen, (laughs) the idea that like I would have to have sex for money to go to college, you know, it was just like eye opening and heart wrenching for me. Yeah. And, you know, there's a scene where she's she's taking a shower afterwards and she's just trying to scrub it off of her. That was tough mm-hmm. on my little preteen eyes. Yeah. In the like gut wrenching reality that follows that, which is her 
brother ultimately is not going to school and she finds out that she did that for ultimately no reason. Yes. Like all of the pieces that also stood out to me were not just like the circumstance, but it was like everyone doing what they thought was the right approach or what they had to do. And then it's still not working out. Correct. Like the, sorry, I'm notoriously horrendous with names. So I'm going to be asking questions about what is the character's name? Who has the baby? Is it TT? Tishan, TT. TT's whole arc is devastating as well. Heart wrenching. Because like they have to work. She has to bring her child to work. Her child ingests like cleaner poison and that gets the child taken away. And I just kept like the entire time we see, I don't know what department ultimately was involved in that situation, but like them saying like, you're bringing your child to work shows endangerment. And it's like, I feel like her bringing her child to work, not just like the only option, but it's like the smartest and safest option. The safest of all of her options. Also now parents get charged with that for letting their kids play in the front yard. So. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And these women like, you know, limited options. It doesn't seem like college was on the table for any of them. And they all like, they worked at Luther's janitorial, just like a noble job trying to make ends meet, trying to play by the rules. Frankie worked at a bank and then Frankie loses her job because not only does she not follow protocol, but the people who rob the bank are people who live in the same projects as she does. Like, what can she do about Mm. that? You know, and so they're all trying to play by the rules, trying to do the right thing and still get fucked every which way. Yeah. More and more, I feel like people just learn through entertainment, maybe more than a lot of other things. And I I don't know. I feel like if I have kids, I'm going to show this to them at an impressionable age. That's how I'll put it. <laughs> I do think it teaches compassion. Yeah, It right. teaches you to get out of your bubble for sure. This movie in the mid-90s had a black lesbian as its hero. And she gets to kiss on screen before dying. It's not like innuendo or suggestion. It's like she is out the gate a black lesbian. There's no question about it. Mm -hmm. Who's the cleaning service owner? Luther. Luther calls her a man occasionally. But he's a bad guy. But her friends who are good. Yeah. No question. No one's like, there's no joke. It is just like, she is a lesbian. That is the case. And this is, I think... I had forgotten this entirely because we've talked on and off on the show about like the first time we saw particular sorts of representation, what representation exists now to kids, which is obviously a whole different story. But I had forgotten entirely that this may be the first queer character and protagonist I ever saw on screen. Oh, interesting. I can't remember if that's true for me, but I do remember it being a big deal. And like my mother and the like the circle of like church ladies and aunties watching the movie and nobody made a big deal of it either. Like you still rooted for Cleo, which I think was helpful for a lot of Southern Christian eyes. (laughs) We love Queen Latifah. (laughs) We want her to make it. We're glad she found love. Yeah, her character is so fantastic. And then also just like the things that were resonant in this beyond like sort of like the things that we're talking about, the dynamics that we're talking about, the social dynamics we're talking about is just like the dynamics of friendship And they have that conversation about friends and money, which is a really great conversation. And it was the best articulation. I haven't seen this in a very, very long time. And it was the best articulation of that conundrum that I've ever heard, which is like, you can just like make money back easily. Although that's like a pretty naive take, but you can make money back easily. (laughs) But your friendship has whatever, like 20 years of equity in it. Like you don't make a split decision of like ruining the friendship. Like you put the money aside. And that was like, just as like Dave Ramsey advice goes, that was fantastic. (laughs) I was like, that's a really good, (laughs) it's a really good takeaway. Yeah, as he's like stirring up a batch of marinara, like and he's trying to woo this woman. It was really great. Absolutely. What I feel like is somewhat lost in that scene for a while until Frankie brings it up later is that Cleo did pull a gun on Stoney. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. And I do think at some point it's okay to lose a friend over that. That's just me. <laughs> I've lost friends over less, so yeah. <laughs> you know? Cleo blames it on being high, but it's also like Cleo got upset because Stoney then slapped her and then raised the bottle to her head as though she were going to hit her, which felt like it was fair, a fair and equal response. (laughs) Maybe not even equal. I loved the like inequity of that exchange, though, which like rung really true, which is it's like take the gun out of the picture. It's like someone says something super fucked up. You respond. And then they're like, that's not fair. And you're like, you just said the fucked up thing. (laughs) crazy. And this is where we learn that Cleo's going to escalate. Yes. Cleo's unhinged. Because we have, first of all, a wonderful scene where they're just all 
doing a godfather <laughs> type impression to each so, other. An incredible so scene. Fun. <laughs> so Cleo Cleo doesn't make it, you guys. And I think her death scene to me is like a clear homage to Sonny and the Godfather. And I feel like I don't know. I like that there gets to be a character in this who like is the sunny character and who is the hothead and who isn't, you know, because I think stories where women are like sensible and don't escalate things because when we're traumatized, we just fucking deal with it. It's like, well, sometimes, but like, mm. <laughs> yeah, and she didn't require much. I mean, it's, I think even when women are allowed to escalate things, it's like their backs are really against the corner, but she's out the gate ready. Like she doesn't need a whole lot of reason to go on this mission. She's ready to fight yeah. McKinley when Sony's brother is killed. Like, I love that about her. Frankie's another one, but Frankie's the one who's like, you know what? I play by the rules and I still lost and now yeah. fuck it all which is like something we've seen probably more than we've seen Cleo's character. And it's funny how Stoney kind of emerges as the protagonist over time because he started off, maybe this is just kind of like simple movie watcher brain, but I think you start off or I started off kind of thinking like, okay, Frankie's kind of going to be our protagonist because we started with her and we start with the injustice of her getting fired. So she's the first character we meet and bond with. So she's the main character. And then over time, I feel like, I mean, it's truly an ensemble piece, but I feel like it gets gradually passed to Stony in an interesting way. Yes, that's an interesting thing that I don't see happen in a lot mm-hmm. of movies, which is like you are introduced to a person who you will be with throughout the entire movie. But at some point, without ever being overt about it, it's never like, and now it's right. Frankie's story. Like at some point, it tapers off into Frankie's story. Stony's story. Excuse me. I'm sorry. Yes. (laughs) I really appreciate how it does that and how it pulls that off. I also like to the points that we've brought up, like I kind of feel like this is not necessarily a movie that people who make like, I think, generally bad faith or like ill-informed assumptions about how the world works is going to seek out necessarily, especially at this point, like maybe when it was out or whatever. But like Mm. this movie kind of has the answer to every time someone is like, well, just don't fuck with the police or yeah, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Right. Totally. Or just follow the rules. It's like, well, I followed the rules and the police were like, you just happen to live in the same, like no one in my situation as like a white guy would go like you live in the same neighborhood as a criminal. And so you're fired. Right. Like, but like when you watch it here, it's sold in a convincing way because it is of the reality that we all exist in in one way or another. And it's part of the plot point. And I like how it does that. And I also like how one of the things I feel like we talk about a lot is the elegance of landing points in a movie and like this again I feel like does all these things elegantly and that it illustrates it it doesn't really go back to like commenting on on it again and again it's just like and then that is what happened and that's why we're here where we are and I love that yeah the women aren't really commenting on their own circumstances in like a think PC way they're just commenting on their lives yeah it's great in that way Sarah, had you seen this before? And what is your what is your take on it? No, I hadn't seen it before. Oh, really? Yeah. And I hadn't I didn't know it existed before we saw nine to five at the bell court and they played the trailer for this. I want to just like come live in Nashville for a month and go to the bell court every night at some point. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, And I I assume I didn't know about it because it wasn't in the rotation of 90s movies that were played on 2003 basic cable on a loop. You know, it wasn't part of the like Pleasantville copycat, the client canon. (laughs) Swordfish. I don't know what else was on. (laughs) My Blue Heaven was on heavy rotation. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I, I assume it's R rated. Because, you know, it's very violent. And there are four sex scenes. And there are like sex scenes. That's a lot of sex scenes for a movie. They're like (laughs) big sex scenes. Yeah. They're like sex scenes that would eventually get parodied because they're so... No, not the sex scenes in this movie, but like kind of like 90s, like full. Oh, that's the style of sex. Yeah, exactly. Like there's an element to this that's not as silly. I'm not saying that it's silly. I like how they treat the sex in this movie. Mm -hmm. But like you kind of don't see sex scenes like this in movies anymore. No. It almost feels like the Top Gun sex scene. There's one like so erotic, like massagey. (laughs) It's so erotic. Massagey scene. And yeah, this is I feel like this is a hard one to make play on television. Yes, it's. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Softcore. Or like basic cable. Yeah. 
you get to see Blair Underwood's tushy, like if you haven't felt convinced so far. And it's well crafted. <laughs> <laughs> that is a steamy, steamy yeah. section. And they play it over in Vogue's Don't Let yes. Go. I mean, candles, dimly lit. It goes on for a very long time. It really does. <laughs> he took candle class at Harvard. It's yoga moves, <laughs> like oil. If they're doing it. My brain exploded at the time, truly. I bet. Especially if you saw this as like a kid. Yeah. There's like a lot happening in this movie. And I was like, my first time is going to be just like that. <laughs> yeah, I do feel like I assumed that sex would involve a lot more like silky fabrics billowing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and a filter of some sort, like a sepia toned filter. <laughs> and there's like, you have like these balcony doors that blow open, right? Yes. And doves fly in. It's like a movie by the guy who did face off but not face off i don't want him to have sex in face off yeah i had forgotten also that this was an f gary gray movie and it's like wild to think that f gary gray the year before would make friday and he made a bunch of my favorite music videos from my childhood yeah <laughs> he made it was a good day which is just like one of the best music videos of all time it makes me think about how like cleo reminded me a lot of like an ice cube character as well mm-hmm. but f gary gray was 24 years old when he made this movie i did not know that that's wild <laughs> Ah, that's incredible. Can you believe it? I was a supreme shithead when I was 24, and he made totally. this movie. <laughs> incredible. We talk way too much about Orson Welles making Citizen Kane when he was 25, so geriatric compared to F. Gary Gray. <laughs> I mean, F. Gary Gray has made like great movies. Oh, he yeah. made The Negotiator, The Italian Job, Be Cool, Straight Outta Compton. Like He's made great great movies and like what a hell of a way to kick off a career with friday and this back to back that's nuts and also like is representing the parts of los angeles that are not really seen or hadn't at least really been seen in film much Mm -hmm. so that was also really cool i think he grew up in la and south la and so he kind of spoke to it with some authenticity which i thought was really lovely Especially, I mean, in Friday and in this, like he treats some of the elements of the area, like some of the violence and the structural violence in the areas, very frankly, but also has these scenes where it's like, and then there's a house party and nothing bad happens at the house party or like all throughout Friday. 90% of that movie is just like a character study of all of the characters in the neighborhood. It's like a loving portrait of an area. Yes, to your point that like in movies about L.A. right up to this point had no representation in film at all had virtually no i mean i don't even think virtually no had no representation in film until the early 90s and i feel like friday in particular and and this too has that has that with the elements again with like the party that we see at the beginning you kind of get the sense that this is someone who's like i just really want you to know who i know they're interesting people (laughs) yeah with stories and hopes and dreams and quirks and flaws yeah i love that Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I like that we just get to see the women like hanging out, especially in a lot of early scenes, like, you know, on the car, on the roof. When movies take that time for like, they're not bonding because they are already sufficiently bonded, but just showing us the nature of the friendship, then I feel like it's like the glue that holds the whole thing together over time. And my friends and I used to act out that rooftop scene so many times. <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> and we, could, we could quote that backwards and forwards. And then we have the scene at the end when she's sitting with her bed of money remembering all of those times oh that's a it's like gutting it's absolutely gutting it's like what madonna's this used to be my playground (laughs) was going for but swung really wide up (laughs) i feel that when you say it i could say yes And, you know, and one of the things Stoney said to Keith, the Blair Underwood character, so many times throughout the movie is that she doesn't feel free. Mm. She wants to feel free. And like, you know, at the end of the movie, ostensibly she's free, but it came with a high price. You know, she's got this pile of money yeah. and no friends <laughs> and everybody is dead. Yeah. And no love. Yeah, and you're not coming back across the border probably anytime soon. 
Yeah, she's going to go live with Clarence in Alabama, the the true romance bungalow. (laughs) I mean, this could be wishful thinking, but I feel like once like Internal Affairs investigates this entire situation, maybe she gets exonerated. I hope. I hope so. Uh, (laughs) Like it's the story with all of the leftists of like the like 70s and 80s where they were like, that leftists were bad, but the FBI really sort of like overplayed their hand. I'm hoping in some fan fiction universe she gets out. Yeah, but those guys were like Brandeis students. Yes, you're right. (laughs) An interesting point. So, you know, at the end, I mean, I never, I cried like 12 times throughout this movie, but at the end, it's just like a nonstop waterfall of tears. Cleo dies beautifully in a gorgeous scene (laughs) with lovely music. And then Frankie gets shot and Stoney watches Frankie get shot from a bus that she snuck onto that's going to Mexico. And Dr. Cox sees Stoney on the bus. Yeah. And lets her go. And so my hope then is that he then like hit all the yeah. files and tore, lost some evidence and just let her. I mean, her life is going to be hard enough. <laughs> like, let her go. Yeah, I was saying to Sarah, I was like, the only thing in this movie I feel like that doesn't hold up is this guy at some point decides he doesn't want to shoot people anymore. You know, I mean, he's responsible for her brother's death at the beginning. He is he the one who shoots her? Is he or it's like the overall him? I don't think he's the one. I think like his team, yes. I think he, he gave them permission. to. And then at some point, you know, he's like very actively trying to not shoot people but what's interestingly represented even though i feel like that feels like an outlier to the reality that we are we are in right now and probably that exact same reality then even when he's trying for it to not happen there's just like the structural reality of being surrounded by the police so he's trying to have it not happen but like everyone around him also has a gun drawn and someone inevitably gets shot like we see that happen in their last robbery where there's the standoff between them you know they're trying to de-escalate the situation and then just some like I don't know if it's a security guard or a random cop runs in and starts shooting at them and then it, it it's yeah. the, the tinderbox that's something that's interestingly illustrated very well is like even if someone is trying to exercise restraint the machine does not allow for restraint mm. right it's interesting that you call that out I hadn't thought about that before because he was the one gunning to find the bank robbers yeah. and then when the bank robbers had faces and backstories, suddenly he was like, oh, wait, let's try to like at mm. least bring them mm. in alive. So then at, before mm. that, he had not realized <laughs> that these people have backstories and shitty circumstances. Like that's an interesting yeah. pivot that you called out, Alex. Maybe he's like, oh, I feel weird about killing women. though." <laughs> Yeah, like what was it all of a sudden? Or was it just extreme guilt because he is responsible for her brother's death? That's how I read it. And it might have been too charitable a read. But like, I feel like to whatever limited ability Dr. Cox's face has to convey nuanced emotion. Again, like that was the thing where I was like, oh, it feels like based on what we know of cops involved in these situations now, it feels a little off. But, you know, when he realizes that they shot the wrong person, it feels like he has some turn that's happening over time that he's constantly reminded of. Like the captain's like, remember the bad press we got when we shot the wrong person? Right, right, right. Again, feels aspirational. But overall, it feels like he has a tapering off over time, which again, it's like the Serpico thing, right? It's like just because you have one good cop doesn't mean that you're not dealing with a, a right. force that is inherently a violent force. It's the a few good apples argument. Yes. Right. And that's with a good cop. But he's just like a moderate cop. Like I wouldn't even put Dr. Cox. He's not like a trying to reform the system from within. <laughs> no, guy. not at all. He's like, we screwed up one time. <laughs> he's just like, I didn't mean to shoot an innocent person. But if yes. he had like a bag of skills that he stole, then I could justify it. But this was just a bottle of champagne celebrating going to college. Right, right, right. Which we've told these people to root for and aspire for, <laughs> you know. And so maybe that has something to do with it. You know, connecting this to heat inevitably one of the classic career criminal narratives or like gangster narratives is like, Oh, the cops and the gangsters, they're like, in the end, the same, they have a code. We're not so different. You and I, right. And it feels like that's almost a requirement of the genre to have like the cop character who has to seem redeemable. Maybe it seems like that's at least the classic formula. Yes. I do wonder about that decision on behalf of like the screenwriters and the director of this movie, because they're clearly like this is a movie with a message. And so the idea of redeeming kind of the white cop who kicked off this hunt is an interesting choice. And I wonder what message they were trying to leave with the audience. 
or if it was a message for other white cops, <laughs> like let her go. <laughs> Maybe that's what it was. I mean, that's the thing that I keep returning to with that narrative is that it's like, to your point, a really great point, like, cause he's not even a good cop. He's just like a cop that has in this situation, like a moderate take that looks in comparison to the surrounding, like it's great. Right. And to me, like the big takeaway there is like, even if you have that, you're still dealing with an institution that sprang from slave catchers. At the end of the day, like you can't, you know, moderate apple your way out of that. Absolutely. <laughs> and you're not up against one guy, you're up against an institution. Right. And if the captain sidelines this cop, there's 50 more that are going to kind of jump in and take over the case and be ready to lock these women away forever, if not kill them before they make it to prison or to trial. To those points, there's that really interesting scene at the beginning when Frankie's being interrogated. And there's the woman who's a cop who's also black, who's drinking water. And on her way out, she says, you didn't even ask me if I was thirsty, which I felt like so pointed and so like specific. Mm -hmm. And it's like from the beginning, the whole setup in this movie is that it's like it's you against an institution and like your relationship with individuals or like your expectation of those individuals towards you like does not matter. There's a real big institutional force that's very difficult to speak to or push against. What was interesting and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think the black female cop said mm. one line No. in the whole movie, not even when Frankie <laughs> said you didn't offer me a cup of water. She says at one point, Will Dust, it's like an expositional line, but he's asking for, right. well, but that's the only thing she has ever said is, Will Dust for Prince. Hmm. Yeah, like she doesn't articulate her POV or what she thinks of her partner <laughs> who's kind of running the whole show. It's a really interesting choice. Yes. I didn't know what to make of it. In somebody else's hands, you would say, okay, well, they didn't give the black woman a speaking line, but we got four black women mm. leads. So then what is happening here? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. That's a great point. Yeah, that's very much a choice. And I don't know what that choice was. Well, A, I, I feel like it makes sense if we're showing that the character is like there, but has no power in the role, kind of like Frankie at the bank, mm. Frankie at the banky. And mm -hmm. also I wonder about, because this seems like it has a bigger budget than Friday. There are some set pieces. We had to drive a van through two different walls. There's a lot of helicopter, yeah. A hibachi. Yeah, oh my God. The heists themselves, the first two at least, were very yes, fun. Yeah, <laughs> like if we're going to have a heist, even if things get really bad, like I want to have some fun with it. And I do feel like it makes such sense to me that this is the same kind of moment and mind as Friday because I feel like comedy is what makes it feel like real life and makes the tragedy feel more real because if people are behaving mm. in that sort of like you know I hate to pick on Christopher Nolan all the time but he just comes to mind very easily you know that like <laughs> we are men of fortune we're going into certain death la 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 very serious kind of a way it's like yeah but I don't relate to that I relate to like right. having gal pals and making rash plans <laughs> with that but i also wonder like how much compromise if any there was in getting funding for this and if there was a sense of like all right we've mm. given you four entire black women what are you gonna give us right yes. a cop who's redeemed at the end and some black cops who are also like helping with this manhunt i am here i'm in charge yeah <laughs> and that's kind of how i read that initial like you didn't ask me if i was thirsty line is that it's like even though you're not talking and even though you don't have power or agency in this situation the way it's set up like i see you mm. like i felt like that was how the at least that initially played which is like i just got berated by two different white guys from two different institutions and like you didn't say a fucking thing mm -hmm. and i saw that and again it's one of those things where I don't know if that was the intention or not, but this movie is so great and that it doesn't revisit that four times to right. make sure you got the point. It's like, right. that just happened. Take it and figure out how you feel about that. And having experienced that in the real world, where it's just like, mm. you know, me and one other in the room, whether it be mm. a woman, a black woman, a black man, but one other in the room and they see you kind of getting shitted on and look the other way is pain. It's incredibly mm -hmm. painful. Right. So it's like, let's kick her while she's down. Yeah, we just talked about that in a different capacity with Laura for To Die For and the scene mm. where she's being humiliated at the table and there's like another woman. Yeah, with George Siegel. Yes. 
Yeah. And this is about kind of like, you know, rampant sexual abuse in the TV news industry. Mm -hmm. Again, it's one of those things that like everyone always knew. It's just there's a difference between knowing and acting like it's a problem. And this is a scene kind of demonstrating like there will be another woman in the room when a lot of this is happening. And one of the attitudes Mm -hmm. she might take is like, well, it's what everyone does. It's a it's a rite of passage. So. Mm-hmm. It's not my problem, and I had to do it, so why right. shouldn't someone else have to do it? It's like student loan debt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I also think sometimes it's like I had to do it, so you do too, but it's also like I'm glad it's you and not me, mm-hmm. and if I just sit right. still enough, mm-hmm. they won't even notice I'm over here. Mm-hmm. Totally. Or if I laugh it off, they'll know that I'm an ally to them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's shitty. Pivoting slightly, I love how Blair Underwood doesn't get angry. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like he gets the call at the end where he could very justifiably be like, oh, what the fuck happened? Mm-hmm. And he's just like, I'm glad you're safe. And that's I'm cry- I'm actually crying. <laughs> That's so lovely. It's such a nice thing. Yeah. <laughs> at the end of this brutal movie, he's like, you know, I'm just glad you're OK. And she says I'm safe, which is so nice. He also doesn't do the whole like Disney Channel original movie thing where he's like, you were never interested in me and my perfect ass. You just wanted to rob the bank. Like he just kind of puts it together and figures you're it out. So right. <laughs> he seemed to have like sized her up pretty immediately and was fully on board for whatever adventure she might drag him on to. Oh, I've, I've been there. Sure. <laughs> I've been in situations where I like, I know that this ride is going to end interestingly, but I'm here for it. And let's just see, let's just see where this takes us. And he, uh, it was great. I also think just like this movie highlighting a class difference between two black people was interesting. Mm-hmm. Like dating across, you know, class divides was an interesting thing to witness. I feel like often you'll see in movies and in real life, like a rich white guy mm-hmm. picks up the cocktail waitress or whatever. I don't always see that with two people of color. Like he's the Harvard banker and she she says she considered business school and he said, oh, what finance? And she was like typing and record keeping. Right. You know, I just feel like we don't often see poor black women mm-hmm. get chosen by the rich, fancy guy. Right. That was interesting to watch. Yeah. And in that scene, he's so awkward about trying to like find a thing to say when he's like, I want to go to a place in your neighborhood. And he's like, it's black owned. I like that. And like, that's like what he's got. Cause like this guy has like gone to Harvard. He has like no concern about money whatsoever. He's doing all right. As she points out, his friends are like owners of banks. He's based on a friend of the director. And that man was Barry Obama. No, I made that up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I that's that's a really spectacular point is that it's not just like a like quote, you know, black movie where all of the experiences are flattened into like a two dimension among all of the characters, like each of the characters, not just within like the interpersonal drama of the individual protagonists, but where they meet each other from like a class perspective is fascinating and like extremely multilayered. Well, that and like, you know, the, the four women it- uh, work for Luther's janitorial. So Luther is like, you know, at least in a, I don't, he owns it, you know, he's the owner mm-hmm. of, and he's also oppressing them and abusing them and mistreating them. There's the car dealership guy who Stoney has sex with for money. Right. And he's also, you know, exploiting their financial status. And so, you know, we got black cops. It was also, it's too bad. Like the car dealership owner was played by Charlie Robinson, who I grew up with as Mac from Night Court. And uh, it was really jarring to oh, see yeah. him be a real scumbag in this real movie. Because like, again, I hadn't seen it for quite a while. It was interesting too, because he, his name in the movie is Nate, the car dealership owner. The power he had over her, right? He has money. She needs it. He didn't have to raise his voice. He didn't have to be aggressive. He didn't, you know what I mean? He, it wasn't your typical, like he got handsy and gropey and yeah, he just was like, I got a check and you want it, which is so creepy to watch. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, you don't get the check until it's done. And I was like, oh, this mm-hmm. is, and you're right. There's no like visible force. Yeah. I th- which I think is creepy because it's got that awareness of like, listen, we both know how this is going to go. So like, why would I overplay my hand here? Right. Sarah, what stuck out to you as far as like what makes this stand out from other movies? What were you struck by that you maybe haven't seen elsewhere or you see rarely? 
I mean, I talk a lot on this show about my love of movies about women being friends. Yeah. <laughs> and this is a movie about women of color being friends with each other, which like I can't think of another movie that has that. You know, there's like movies where there's like a woman of color who's like in the babysitter's club or something. Or the best friend. <laughs> Always a best friend of some white women who are friends. Yeah. Right. Yes, who's like, I'm very eager to hear about your stupid relationship problems yet again. I mean, Hallmark <laughs> movies could not exist without <laughs> this character. But right, that it's like these women are just friends with each other. That is the focus that like Cleo gets to kiss and have a hot girlfriend who is around and who is like who she's physical with the whole time, which just like. I feel like this is the era of someone either being maligned for being gay or being like referred to as a lesbian and like never so much as holding hands with anybody. Or like, you know, like how Willow and Tara didn't get to kiss until the episode where Buffy's mom died, which is like, I guess, kind of foreshadowing. <laughs> <laughs> Spoilers for Buffy. <laughs> but just that like that I love that it's about women and the conditions of their lives that make crime perhaps the most reasonable option. Like, honestly, if you think about, like, how do I get a significant amount of money all at once in a way that means that, like, it won't just get taken from me as fast as it comes in? Like, I just, you know, I'm not a genius. I can't think of something better than bank robbery in this situation. And I love that it communicates that. And I also, I feel like I'm realizing that Hustlers has a lot of this DNA in it and is, you know, a version of this where nobody has to die. So, but yeah, it's, yeah, I loved it. They also give you a nice hook with the fact that Frankie has worked at a bank for four years. So it's not like we just decided to yeah. do cybercrime with no expertise. Like, it's like, okay, she's got an end. She can talk. There's the thing called a cow. That's where the money's going to be stored. All like that was kind of a cool reason for her to know how to rob a bank. It didn't come out of the blue. Yeah, they've got the knowledge like this isn't a fluke. I think like so many movies kind of are stuck even in the idea of like, but crime is bad. And it's like, well, why? <laughs> right. Even Cleo was like, the bank is insured. <laughs> Get over yourselves. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you get the sense to that point, Sarah, where a lot of movies are just like, but in the end, crime doesn't pay. It's like no situation seemed like it was going to pay here. Like none of the right. end games seemed great. Yeah. Working doesn't pay either. So Correct. figure that out, Descartes. It <laughs> <laughs> and it's one that like just increasingly got more resonant year by year until now that it's like this system overall it just does not seem to be good for anybody aside from people who hold yeah. wealth right like and so yeah the bankers yes and, and oh we get the we get the great <laughs> We get the great line from that man's wife who says, I thought a bunch of dead bankers would be a good thing. And they all chuckle. <laughs> <laughs> the very cocktail party, throw your head back. That exactly. was hilarious. I was chuckle. Like, this, come in 2008? <laughs> like, this is real. <laughs> I'm trying to think now of other movies where there were four, like a four black woman ensemble cast until Girls Trip between Set It Off and Girls Trip, which had two of the same characters, yes. right? We have Queen Latifah and... Mm jada pinkett in both how many people were in waiting to exhale does that count four okay. you got it yep nailed it and that was that movie was a phenomenon like i remember that being all anyone could talk about oh yeah for what it felt like months so like once every seven years there we go okay yeah Jeez. <laughs> like cicadas well and now we have at least three tv shows with an ensemble of four black women on the air yeah what, was, what preceded this living single? And that was like four years beforehand. Was that or was that three or four characters? Living single had four. Yeah. So, yeah, it really does feel like it's like a once every five year situation. Yeah. Which is a travesty. We have Run the World on Stars, Harlem on Amazon and Insecure. They were all kind of mm. on at the same time, HBO. And somebody tweeted like, how many four black women <laughs> shows are we going to get? And I'm like, well, first of all, I'm currently pitching one. And so hopefully four. <laughs> Four is at least the minimum. Like, you know, like it shouldn't be as rare. Like there's no like, oh, we did it. Because <laughs> like, each each ensemble is just like a different cast of characters. Yeah, absolutely. A different dynamic. 
different backstories, different relationships. Yeah. I'm so glad that we're covering this in proximity to us having covered widows. And I really do hope now at this point mm. that we do hustlers so that we can, we oh, can yeah. complete the triple crown, complete the theme. <laughs> <laughs> which is fantastic. There's also a movie called The Kitchen with Melissa McCarthy, mm. Tiffany Haddish. It's another heisty movie. I feel like Ooh. it's similar to Widows. Perhaps their male partners were the gangsters and somehow mm. they took over. Oh, I haven't anyway, seen that. Just to add, add it to your list, I think I saw it and don't recall it, but add it anyway. <laughs> Alex, we're going to have a heist girl summer. Yeah. yeah that's great. That's <laughs> fantastic. Let's do it. <laughs> Oh my God. Well, before we get into the who's the daddy question, if you had to, you know, you find out that some unfortunate soul at a party has not seemed set it off. What's your pitch? What's your sell to them? I mean, it's Jada Pinkett, Vivica A. Fox and Queen Latifah 30 years ago when they were just like babies. Like, you know, like that's awesome to me. Four black women, a heist movie. Like who doesn't love a heist movie with really fun heists? And, you know, there's sex and murder and violence and a, almost getting away like you know to me to me that would work <laughs> yeah and also three words blair underwood's tushy man yes it's yeah there. <laughs> yeah it is there. i mean if you want to cry if you want to laugh if you want to see some sexy scenes like this is it the movie i knew jada pickett from prior to this was Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight, yeah. which came out in 1995. And it's gr- I watched that last year, and it is great. <laughs> it is a great horror movie. I'll have to watch that. That's Billy Zane? Yeah. The- yes, yeah. yes, it is. <laughs> huge in that movie. Thomas Hayden Church is in it, too. But, like, you know, huge is in overacting in a beautiful way. But uh, <laughs> she was, like, I think maybe the hottest person I'd ever seen at that. Fair. <laughs> but especially in, fair. like, a horror movie. And then to see her, oh, God, yeah. Jada Pinkett in the mid-90s was, like, oh yeah. I mean, still is a force, but, like, was a force. My introduction to her was a different world. Oh, of course. Yes. <laughs> and again, Jada did a thing where she's like petite and pretty and all the things, but also like is going to wear baggy pants and hmm. some heavy shoes. And I just thought that was like a cool combo. Again, I, I'm coming from the South. We wore dresses and girdles and stockings <laughs> in middle school. So like that was awesome to me. And like short hair, killing it. I love the ending of this, speaking of all that. Yeah. What do you love about it? You know, to blow the ending. I love the classic, like, I got away with it, but at what cost? Now I'm south of the border, driving away, ending. Like, I always fall for it. It's always good. It's just like, it's got a nice, clean finish. It's a classic. Mm. There's also something I noticed last night, perhaps for the first time, is when she's driving her Jeep next to the ocean as she's driving away. The music starts off as like a like metal. Like <laughs> for me, I felt like, oh, this song is not appropriate for what we're witnessing. Like this is actually really sad. And then as it plays that song for maybe six seconds, then the credits start to roll and it transitions into like a very soft, somber song. And I was like, mm. oh, this feels right. So I feel like that is also the journey that she's on. Like, okay, I mm. made it, but also this sucks. So Ultimately, I thought that music choice was really smart. Yeah, I'm just, I mean, watching her with the money, thinking about her friends, to me, it really makes it impossible to not think about like, boy, it's almost like there's a commentary here about like, (laughs) like the only way to get this much of this thing is for three people to die. And a brother. Yeah. It's like when people are like, why won't billionaires just fix everything? It's like, well, you don't become a billionaire by being a person who's willing to fix everything. Mm -hmm. You become a billionaire by sacrificing Mm -hmm. every moral ever in your life. By making people work until they pass out in your factory. Exactly. Yes, totally. At the end of the day, like this movie has a lot of love in it, but like it also has like a very realistic quasi nihilistic perspective, which is like the price you pay for this money is bad the price you pay for doing nothing to intervene upon your own situation because the entire system is stacked against you is bad the price of doing the right thing and playing by the rules is also bad and these are important life lessons for a young brain that is just forming (laughs) right and then it's an action heist movie that brings you in because it's fun you're like i love heists i'm gonna watch it and then yeah i think that the understanding at the end is like Wow, it's almost like, because it is like any decision Stoney made would have resulted in people she loved dying. 
Yeah. And it starts with the fact that her parents are already dead. Like (laughs) it's just a lot of death surrounding this poor woman. Right. And again, she's like doing the right thing that it's payoff is grim. Right. Is there a father in this movie? Damn. (laughs) (laughs) It's a fatherless movie, which is also interesting. Damn. (laughs) Yes. I mean, she's her brother's. She's the closest thing to a parent at all is she's her brother's parent. Right. Right. It is interesting that nobody was given like, you know, the kind of stock character of like a grandma who needs money like grandmas do. They're like, nope, these women are the adults in their lives. This is it. Yeah. And how old do we think they are in this movie? You know, like 25. I think like maybe younger. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, but in there, it's interesting. They are the oldest people like of the core. Like, yeah. It seems like they're all kind of raising themselves. While T.T.'s raising a child. Yeah, it's a wholly, not parentless movie, but any of the characters, there's no one above them. Right. Mm. That is interesting. Mm. Okay, well, there's no father in this movie. <laughs> damn. As I say again, damn. <laughs> Who would the daddy be in your view? I feel This is a rich one. Rich in potential daddies. You guys go first. Mm. <laughs> Sarah, who's the daddy in this movie for you? I mean, for me, it's Cleo because I love that she is existing. And then also by extension, Queen Latifah, because we have a character who's existing like in the world inside of this movie. And then also literally in this movie with a swagger and with joy, Mm -hmm. kissing her girlfriend in front of us. I cannot begin to express how you didn't see this and continue to not see it really. It's just like a singularity within the 90s. It's like there's the whole of the 90s and then there's like Queen Latifah as Cleo kissing her girlfriend. Mm -hmm. She's the daddy. (laughs) Yeah, I fully agree. Because Queen Latifah has become such a mainstream celebrity, it's hard to remember that Mm -hmm. she was not. Right, because now she's like Ms. Last Holiday or whatever. Right. She's like a voice on commercials now and stuff like that. And like the song Unity was like the first time I ever heard (laughs) ever heard someone make a case for just not calling a woman a bitch like in a time when that was much less contested in popular culture, I would say. So I love that. I love Queen Latifah. I love the role that she plays here. And I love that she she's like the Omar of this movie, right? In The Wire, (laughs) which The Wire does this again later. But this is the first movie she does it where it's like an outlaw character, an absolute badass character, an out-abashed queer character. And I love that when she's like inappropriately spending her money first and spends down all of her money and they come in and she's just like bought her girlfriend like negligee and she's like kissing her girlfriend's like legs while they're talking to her (laughs) and she just like doesn't give a fuck in like a way that is like at once absolutely reckless and also a saving grace for them a number of times Mm -hmm. she'll drive a van through a wall yeah there's like no right constructive way to be all the time for every situation like sometimes our way of being is a strength in particular situations and it's a weakness in other situations and i think that that's like beautifully illustrated here so i sarah i'm with you on on cleo okay two for cleo yeah you know i think it started off i would want to say frankie you know, she's kind of the one who puts it in their brains and maybe we should rob a bank. Her incident is the inciting one. And then all the other ones have things happen to them as well. And then, like you said, it shifted away from Vivica. It shifted away from Frankie as the lead to Jada. But Jada Stoney, if anything, was the mommy of the group mm. in my eyes. And so I guess that leaves Cleo. And that does make sense, especially if you have a complicated relationship with your father. Or like <laughs> Cleo's just like making bold, big decisions that often are wrong and leave people with a lot of baggage. So, <laughs> so that's Perfect my dad. case. <laughs> Those are all beautiful cases for daddom here and it shows the true spread of what that could be. <laughs> this is our first unanimous call. Okay. It is. Isn't that great? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out who like a runner up would be. I'm falling short here. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, you could say Blair Underwood's character because he has the strength to be like, all right, I get it. <laughs> and some wisdom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you associate that with dad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe not with dads, but for daddy energy, there's you could definitely take yes. it in like a Corinthians kind of a direction. But yeah, also Cleo fits perfectly. Sarah, that was a sick Corinthians Thank reference. Thank you. Sarah, but that's why I show up for this show every time. <laughs> 
I was watching something that had a wedding in it with a Corinthians reading, you know, like you do at weddings. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know about these Corinthians. They might need to read Codependent No More. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to Akila Green for being on the show. We appreciate you. Thank you, dear listener, for listening. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the show. Thank you so much to Miranda Zickler for editing the episode. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for producing the beats that appear on our episodes. You are good, again, as made possible with your support. So you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash youaregood, where you can find info about uh, how to support the show. You can get the bonus episodes, like I said. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram, both at youaregoodpod. That's it. Next week, Age of Innocence with Princess Weeks. Ugh, what a lineup for these shows. We are so lucky to do this. Thank you so much for making it possible. You, my friends, are good.